Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome back to the Salty Brother podcast. Um, today we had an awesome conversation with Willie McBride. Um, Willie used to be our coach way back in the day, uh, sailing coach, and um, talked to him a bunch of uh, a lot of coaching philosophies and and the kite foil league startup and and some some other water activities. So it was a fun conversation. Yeah, if you're uh, into either sailing or lobster diving, <laughs> this is your podcast. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, Willie's a, a bright mind and always thinking outside the box of new stuff. So uh, definitely our longer podcast, but we definitely get into it on some some interesting topics. So have a listen and uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in. Nice. Well, um, yeah. So, podcast time. So let's get let's get into it. So, uh, what have you what what have you been up to? What are uh, what did you do this weekend? Uh, what did I do this weekend? I went down to to Marina del Rey and did some J seventy sailing this weekend, which was cool. It was our first time back in the boat since the Worlds, and uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. The breeze came up on Sunday, and had a little little rip downwind which was cool and other than that been doing a bunch of coaching and you know spending as much time having fun around the water as possible which is is cool nice <laughs> very cool yeah that's uh that's what we've been doing too we've been uh <laughs> yeah getting ready to get back in the dive this week i'm i'm pretty ready <laughs> yeah i was pretty i was pretty exhausted on sunday but yeah i couldn't <laughs> couldn't uh rally for the evening but i'm excited to go on wednesday and i don't know i i'd actually be game to go tonight if you want to but we can think about that later what <laughs> okay. what kind of yeah. diving are you guys talking about here <laughs> <laughs> a little, Lo- little lobster hunting nice <laughs> going yeah. and hanging out with the lobsters down there <laughs> how long have you guys been doing that for i mean i think the first time we went was with casey yeah right that, that was would have been back in 20 that was a long time ago yeah like that, 2014 2015 but i think yeah. we looked at it and uh we were we were reflecting just the other day like even if you you know go down there and you're out for a couple of hours you're really only spending a couple of minutes of those hours underwater and you know of those minutes who knows if you actually see a lobster and and so it's it's definitely been a slow learning curve relative to everything else i feel like it's it's there's a very um kind of harsh set of entry requirements in order to, <laughs> to get into it you know it's cold and it's uncomfortable and you need a lot of gear and maybe you have to go at night <laughs> and sort of all these things that are stacked against actually catching a lobster and having fun doing it. <laughs> but, it's weird. It, it's kind of weird how like consistent it is. Like sometimes I feel like there, you'd think there's so much luck involved with it, but like you, I feel like every time we go, we see like the same amount of lobster and they're like kind of similar size. It's not like you go and one time you'll like never see anything. And then other times you'll see like a ton. It's kind of like, it's kind of weird how there must be like every 20 feet, there must be like so many lobster, like wherever you go, it's like pretty consistent yeah. grid. Well, so. and I think we've just super slowly, consistently gotten better at it. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of frustrating how slow that process has been compared to something like sailing or surfing or kiting or whatever, <laughs> where, you know, you can go every day and you can consistently do it every day and get better. But with the lobster diving it's been this like really slow you can only go certain times of the year of the year like there's waves half the time or there's no visibility half the time and and uh so but i feel like this last one we finally started to find a nice little groove where we actually grabbed a bunch of them (laughs) what did you uh what did you cook on thursday or friday when was that Boil uh, them up. We fried them up in the skillet. Lots of nice. butter, half butter, half <laughs> <lobster>. <laughs> nice. Uh, nice. 
yeah, but it's like not- lobster diving is a lot different than like spear fishing where like spear fishing um that's where you started diving right spear fishing yeah and then yeah. but you can't see the lobster from where you're swimming so you have to dive down and then start hunting or I, I don't I've only filmed Quinn once lobster diving I've never been so <laughs> yeah so that was the last time I think when you were out last time was like the end of the season last year maybe and yeah. that was the last time that I had been prior to this year and uh yeah I mean it's definitely different you know you can't see much and I mean especially when the visibility is questionable <laughs> you know yeah. you, gotta, you gotta get down there and you gotta be on the bottom and, and it's really interesting because the conditions really affect how much ground you can cover. You know, it's, it's dark out, it's nighttime. And so you're using flashlights and basically if the visibility is bad, you can only really see what's in the beam. Whereas if the visibility is good, you know, maybe you can see a little bit outside of the beam and, and you kind of have a little bit more peripheral vision but even then it's it's you're very much kind of living in your little tunnel and and wondering what's outside of that tunnel (laughs) and uh and so yeah you know we were I think it's it's a funny thing because there's not a lot of resources on how you do it there's not a lot of things that can tell you you know go down and and look in these places or or try these techniques And so as far as, you know, what we've found, I think we all go down there and do random stuff and then come up and, (laughs) you know, maybe talk about one detail each evening, like last, last week or last week we were talking about, you know, do you, is it better to go down and specifically uh, really thoroughly search one rock or do you kind of let the current and the waves and the water movement kind of push you around and and cover a lot of ground that way and and definitely and i think we were we were all using different strategies i think that lucas was saying that he was down there kind of really searching on one rock and and trying to kind of go through every little crack of that rock to see if there's any lobsters hanging around whereas definitely i know that i was you know, just, it it was a wavy night. It was, there was a lot of water movement. There was a lot of energy in the water. And, and I felt like hanging onto the rocks and, and trying to search one specific rock really used up a lot of energy. You know, it was like just latching onto that rock, unless you got into like a nice little eddy or something like that. Um, I felt like I really had to to burn my oxygen to you know stay attached and so I kind of felt like that cover more ground strategy was was the way to go in those conditions but I don't know you know yeah (laughs) I feel like you were you were talking when we went out on that boat that time you were talking about that guy who flies the drone with the sharks like the and everyone like sees all the great whites I feel like that's how lobsters are like there's probably way more out there than like what we see you know we probably like we probably like look through like with our light like wait probably like five times more than what we're grabbing but no I think I was I was gonna say like spearfishing is like the uh <laughs> You're a little delayed, Willie. Do you have an is your internet great? I, yeah, my internet is great, Quinn. <laughs> Anyways, we can move on from lobster diving. <laughs> well, I think um my one question on that was uh, there's this one quote that says I would much rather have done it than do it and that seems to be <laughs> describing your lobster diving like oh, for do sure. You, do you enjoy it or is it more of just a like you get out of the water and like that was cool to have done that and learn stuff and you're out in the night and yeah you know I learned from this sailing coach there's three types of fun there's type one fun which is like I'm I'm actively having fun while I'm doing the thing (laughs) there's type two fun which is like you know I cross the finish line and and I reflect on wow that was fun and then there's type three fun which is only fun later on as a story in the bar (laughs) and uh you know probably lobster diving falls definitely outside of that type one fun yeah that makes sense (laughs) it's uh, it's more fun but you know I don't know every once in a while like 
hard to say whether I just remember it this way or whether it actually is this way, but when the lobsters are like bouncing off your mask and <laughs> uh, you're down there and you're seeing all these cool things, like there's definitely fun moments, but it's, uh, it's one of those things where when you're in it, you're just so focused on, on doing the thing. You know, it's, it's the sport that I've done that makes me the most nervous. Like when I know that I'm going to go diving, I wake up in the morning and I start thinking about it. I like, I just got this feeling in my stomach all day long. Like, okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting ready to go do this thing, you know? And I think it's good. I think it's, it's part of the, part of what makes it unique and, and fun. Um, but it's definitely like a, a very immersive, very intense experience. Yeah, no, I, I 100% uh, feel that. I had um, one question on like, does that nervousness go with uh, like sharks at all? Because I've been listening to a couple of podcasts on sharks and like, because uh, I'm doing the downwinding and Quinn's starting to do that and you're like way off to, to sea on this little tiny board. So I've been kind of like, yeah, I mean, it's the same thing where I you're like, like okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a downwind today and then the whole day you're just like, oh, I don't want to fall. <laughs> like condition is going to be good. And then the whole day you're just thinking about it. Um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think about it. I think in the moment, but when you see sharks down there, cause we see all the time, but they're little tiny ones. But I mean, you, you come around the corner on a rock and your flashlight lights up this thing that is the shape <laughs> of a shark. And there's like this deep seated, like evolutionary response, I think that's like, oh my God, I should swim to the surface right now, you know, and, and get out of the water because uh, I don't know, they're, they're definitely, um, you're living in the world when you're in there, you know, yeah, <laughs> and, for sure. Uh, and it feels like you can't do much about it, but I don't know. I think, I think one of the cool things about this, the Rhone guy, the, the Malibu artist, I think the thing he really tries to highlight is that there are all these interactions and, and the reality is you're, you're close to a shark when you're in the water way more often than, than you probably know. <laughs> and, and they know it, but they don't really care, you know? And, and so his whole point is like, they're not, they're not out to get you. Um, and so I guess there's some level of comfort in that, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just to steal a quote from uh, Lance Armstrong, because I listened to the Lance Armstrong podcast with Michael Muller. He was telling a story that's like, uh, I don't know if it's a quote or something. It's like, you put you put a finger in the ocean and you taste it yeah. and it tastes like salt. Then there's sharks in the water. <laughs> totally, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've got a buddy who's a lifeguard at the state beaches around here. And he says that people always ask him whether there's sharks. And he yeah. uses that quote all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, but to kind of move on, I think like um, you've mentioned a lot about kind of like the learning process. And I think knowing you for a long time, that's kind of been your your whole life motto is how to learn the most um, and how do you like perfect that. And I think as you transition to a coach, like kind of where did that come from or how did that like, um, I don't know, progress as your sailing career kind of went on? Yeah, I, you know, I think it probably stemmed from the fact that I started sailing a little bit later than a lot of my friends, a lot of our friends. And, and, you know, I was 10 years old, which um, isn't obviously very old, but at the same time, I, a lot of friends started sailing when they were six or when they were eight and to, to be competitive, to like really get to the top of that junior sailing uh, hierarchy. I think that it was helpful to start when you were younger. And so I kind of always felt like I was playing catch up. I felt like I was behind and, and had a lot to learn. And I guess I had these kind of, I, I didn't realize that from the beginning, but I thought about it more in terms of, I didn't understand why other people consistently beat me. <laughs> And, and I didn't understand, I, I, I guess I had a couple of really influential experiences where a sailing coach talked about the wind shifting and, and my mind was blown, you know, because we grew up sailing in this little basin on West Beach uh, in the seashells 
where the wind was basically the same every day and and you know in retrospect yeah there were these geographic features that just sat on the race course and the wind was better on one in one part of the bay and it was worse in another part or there was a wind shift you know up at the top or or whatever it was um but when i heard that people were beating because the wind was shifting it was like well really you know i had no idea and and that kind of on this path to figuring out okay well how does it shift and and why and and you know one thing led to another and i think that this whole thing has been this long learning process and and i think that you know to to build on the discussion of of lobster diving one of the coolest things to me has been kind of putting together all these different things and and when i realized in sailing that you know what i was doing in school or what i was learning surfing or what i you know what i was learning doing all these other things um reading books could relate back to my sailing um that was kind of the accelerator i think for me that really got my brain going and got me thinking about okay how can i take all these unrelated things, all these unrelated lessons and use them to get better faster. And, and uh, that's been the goal ever since. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think coaching or, or not coaching, but like sailing is so, so diverse. Like I feel like there's just endless things that you can think about and, and figure out. Um, and I feel like that's something like that when we, when we, when you coached us a bunch and like even just coaching with you now, like, I feel like there's, there's always an overlap between like talking about things that are already known and then things that like people don't know. And I feel like that separation, like you've always been really good about separating those things. Like this is what we do know, but here's something that maybe we don't know that we should try to figure out, but to, to work that into a question, like um, you've kind of had a pretty diverse um, coaching. And like, do you think that do you have a moment where you feel like you've had the biggest impact or that you've had the biggest kind of success as a coach? Um, and then from there, like how big of an effect do you think coaches have um, kind of in any sport? I think that's an interesting, you know, so as far as moments go, I think there are the, the big culminating moments when, it, you know, everything seems to fall into place and seems to come together. But I think one of the really challenging things about sailing is that it is such a complex sport. Like you say, you know, there's so many different ways to win. You can win by being faster, by being better boat handling, by being smarter. And each of those things have a million different ways that you could approach them and, and get better at each of those individual things. You know, I think that um, some teams that I've worked with have won because they're more organized and they're better at logistics and they're better at planning and and they're able to execute on their plan because they have that piece of the puzzle. Whereas other teams, you know, they, they just um, are more in tune with what they're feeling and they're more willing to trust what the, the sensations in their body and kind of their gut feelings on what's good and what's fast and what's you know, the right way to go on the race course and things like that. So there's all these different ways to approach it. And I think that at the end of the day, um, I think that there's, you have to decide on a strategy. So, so for me, the more I've coached, I guess when I first started coaching to address the second part of your, when I first started coaching, I, I definitely asked myself that question, you know, do, do coaches have an impact? Does coaching matter? And because for me, if the answer is no, if it's really just a question of is there talent and do you have access to that talent and do you get to claim that talent, <laughs> then there's no point, right? Then, then it's like, well, am I really contributing anything to these people's experience? Maybe, maybe not. But I think when you look at it, you look at these little, these little hubs of excellence and you, the, some of the examples for me were Steve Hunt, um, who 
runs the program down in San Diego and, and has his, you know, high school sailing team that wins the nationals like every freaking year. And, and you've got Victor Kovalenko and the Australian 470 squad where, you know, he's clearly there's an aspect of those people are good at identifying the right people and, and putting those people together with other people who will support them and who will compliment them. But I think that the, the generational longevity that those programs have, where they just continue to produce amazing sailors is testament to the fact that the talent is out there, you know, that, that, that within any community, whether it's a, as big a community as the Australian, you know, continent, <laughs> where you're pulling from, from a nationwide pool of talent or a community as small as the San Diego you know, Yacht Club and, and the areas around San Diego, um, the talent is there. You know, the, there are plenty of people who are good enough to get to that top level if they approach right. And I think that what these coaches do is that they provide the tools, they provide the maybe a philosophy on how to train how to improve because i think that one of the things i see a lot is you have the the talent but one of the pitfalls that talent can run into is that if if you're good and you're young oftentimes it is because you had some small advantage from the beginning that made you think okay i'm talented like i have something special that nobody else has and in order to get to the top at the end, you have to kind of come to this realization that, you know, everybody that I'm competing against has something special, has that special thing that I thought I had, <laughs> you know, refine their learning process to make it better and to make it different. I think it's, it can be scary to feel like, hey, I won when I was young because I did things a certain way and then to have to change that later on. So, um, you know, that's the long way of saying, yes, I think coaches have a big impact. <laughs> um, and, and I think that, um, that there's so many different ways to have that impact and to win. But for me, it's this long process oriented focus on details and on little tiny changes little incremental changes that you make every day and and ultimately what that means is that might be these moments where you finally see it all come together but I don't think that that as a coach I think one of the challenges as a coach is that there are never these really hugely gratifying, you know, like, oh, we figured it out. And that's the answer. And that's the magic bullet. You know, it's, it's these little tiny things that you have to trust that, that you are making progress and that you are moving in the right direction because you're not going to see it all at once. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's pretty brilliant, but um, it's definitely interesting because sailing is one of those sports that like anyone can become good at, you know, it's nothing, there's no like, oh, they're six, eight and <laughs> have an insane vertical. So they're going to be a little bit better <laughs> at basketball than you, you know, like sailings, it's not that. So I think that's a very interesting thing um, to look at. But I think the one thing you pointed out was kind of like the, there's definitely a difference between uh, like Olympic level coaching versus like youth coaching where these, these guys like Steve, uh, do just produce really good young sailors all the time. And then there's Victor, who you also mentioned, who produces Olympic level sailors that do really well. Uh, do you have any like thoughts on like kind of the difference between youth sailing versus Olympic sailing? Because you've obviously you've coached at the Olympics, you did an Olympic campaign, you've coached like high school. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. It's interesting because it's something that I reflected on a lot recently, actually, because I was full steam ahead, like fully immersed in the Olympic world and, and that kind of pathway prior to COVID all the way up to the 
end of the Olympic trials in class. And Dane, you obviously know that trials ended in Australia uh, in, I think it was February of 2019. And, you know, I remember flying home from Australia and the gate to go to the US was right next to the gate to go to, um, to China to, you know, I, I think basically to ground zero for COVID and everybody was standing in those lines wearing masks. And, and I was like, whoa, that's crazy. And uh, little did I know that, you know, a month later, um, we'd be going into lockdown and, and kind of everything would, would follow here in the US. And, and so I think that basically for me, the transition at that point in time was from thinking about the this Olympic class kind of four year, you know, what became a five year pursuit and this really long term thinking to shifting towards thinking about junior sailing again and thinking about these more local communities, because I've spent pretty much the last year and a half, two years um, now here in California doing a lot of coaching in Santa Barbara and in LA and, and really more regional local type of stuff and and working with kids again for the first time in a long time and it's been really good you know I think that it's been a return to some of the roots of of kind of what what developed my coaching ideas in the first place and you know I give a lot of credit to the time that I spent coaching the Santa Barbara Youth Foundation, because when I was running the program, um, as the program director, we didn't have a head coach, and they don't have a head coach now, and so as the program director, you spend a lot of time coaching. I think there was a period of time, there was a period of probably a year or two, where I spent six days a week on the water, and I think spending that much time thinking about sailing, trying to learn how to communicate these ideas, trying to figure out what ideas were worth communicating to the kids. Um, you know, it forces you to think about things in simple terms. And, and I think that that's one of the brilliant things that Steve Hunt does so well, is that he really boils things down to like what matters and what doesn't. And he communicates the things that matter in a variety of ways that, you know, speak to all kinds of different people, um, whether they're the intuitive type that, that, you know, might not really, really be interested in discussing things in a um, analytical and, and quantitative way. Um, he kind of gives them ways to go out and, and see it developing and, and, and see it for themselves and develop those ideas intuitively in their own minds. Um, or the types of people who, you know, really want to dig in and discuss the details and, and talk about the theory and kind of roll things around in their brains. And I think that, that the interesting thing to me is that I think so many of the things that apply in junior sailing also apply at the Olympic level, but oftentimes the Olympic pursuit convinces us <laughs> that, that there are these, you know, magic bullets. We think that we're doing things well. And, and so I think actually in my experience, more often than not, it's not that the Olympic pursuit is actually different than the junior sailing approach or something like that. It's that we assign a difference because there's some difference in intensity or difference in, in our minds in the way that it should work. Um, you know, we believe that it's different and therefore we approach it differently. And I think that that more often than not, if you can go back to those simple things that worked for you as a junior sailor, um, you you know that makes the biggest difference even at the top levels. 
Um, and, and yeah, there is a difference in terms of the time scale and the, the amount of time that you have to dedicate to each of those things and, and that you can dedicate to each of those things. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's the continuation of the same sort of pursuit of how do you get better at this thing? And, and I think that's what the best junior sailors do. I think it's what the best pro sailors do. And I think it's what the best Olympic sailors do is, is figure out, you know, how do we refine our learning process every single day? Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like there's, um, there's like big differences in like time um, that compared to like those two things, like the Olympic sailors have so much time and they spend like their whole lives, like, or their whole like year and four years kind of doing this thing. And then youth sitters like, oh, I'm, I practice like two days a week in the afternoons, but, <laughs> but, yeah. and then I think like Olympic sitters like put so much importance on everything. Um, like, oh, their diet and their, and their, they're working out and they're, they're all this training. They put a lot of importance on that stuff, but you're right there. Everyone's kind of working on the same thing. You're still trying to go fast upwind or, or learn about certain things, you know? I think that's one of the, maybe one of the biggest differences and one of the biggest traps to me of Olympic sailing is that what I find is that a lot of times, you know, coming from junior sailing, you're coming from a place where every single year, that year is all that matters to you. All that matters is going out and there's going to be some peak event at the end of the year. And the world championship this year is the same as the world championship next year, which is the same as the world championship the year after that. And you can just continue to go through these one year long training cycles where, you know, in, in a full year, you have to get in boat handling, you have to get in boat speed, you have to get in tactics, you have to go racing enough that you're good on the starting line. Whereas in Olympic sailing, you know, the world championship this year in Oman, um, you know, it'll be a great experience. It'll be nice to check in with where the fleet is, but is it important? Eh, you know, it, it, it's not going to have a big bearing on how you do at the Olympics at the end of the day, I don't think. The world championship next year. Okay, now we're talking about country qualification. We're talking about, you know, really seeing who's actually coming back and seeing the full depth of the fleet. Um, the following year, might also be a country qualifier event and and it'll probably you know could have something to do with the olympic trials all of a sudden now we're talking about more important events and then obviously the most important one is the olympics four years down the road and and i think that the interesting thing about that is that you know when we're talking about the same skill development that we're talking about in junior sailing we're talking about speed we're talking about boat handling we're talking about um, tactics, you have, you know, if, if you try to hit every one of those things every year, um, by the time you get to year three, you're tired of focusing on boat handling, you know, nobody goes into year three thinking if only I could get better at tacking, you know, that would change my, change my racing. <laughs> Everybody goes into year three and they're like, okay, how many regattas can we go to this year? And if you go into year one thinking the thing that's going to set me apart in year four is the racing in year one, you're going to get to year three and there's going to be diminishing marginal returns on that racing. You know, if you've done a hundred regattas between now and, and year three, year four, um, the question to me is how much are you actually changing every time you go and you race? How much are you actually improving? Whereas if you were to focus on boat handling in year one, you can improve that boat handling so much for a year or for six months or for whatever time period you choose to dedicate to it. But for a long time, you can make improvements in that. And that way, by the time you get to year three, you're not worried. You're not, you know, focused on changing your tact. You're like, hey, we put the time in already. Let's focus on racing now. Um, and, and so I think that, that while the topics are the same and the approach is largely the same, that time scale definitely makes a difference. Yeah, it's definitely, I think one thing you keep alluding to is like, just kind of simplifying everything, you know, like if you're only thinking about bow handling, then it's pretty easy to talk about and dissect your practice. And then once that's done, you write that off and you, you go away because one thing that I've always pondered on is like, whenever, 
I do well in an event or like a race day. It's like how little things you're actually thinking about, you know, like you're like, Oh, the right looks good. (laughs) And your whole focus is I'm going to go to the right and you execute it. And there's, (laughs) and it works. And then there's days where nothing goes right. And it seems like the most complicated, like (laughs) super confusing thing. And I think like, I don't know, everything you're saying just leads right to like simplifying all of racing. And I think it's part of this life cycle of learning, right? It's yeah. been super interesting and really fun in the last year to to kind of get into this kiting thing and figure out how, you know, what what's the deal with kiting? What's the deal with with foiling kites and formula racing and and how are you going to win on a kite board? And the really interesting thing to look at to me, I, I mean, it really brings me back to this to this beginner's mind, right? To, to borrow a, a little Zen terminology um, of putting yourself in a place where you're back at step one and you don't know anything about this thing. And when you enter into that world, into that kind of place where you don't know anything, there's a thousand different things to learn about. You gotta learn about, you know, foil shapes and board designs and kite line lengths and, and what are the different kites and 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 then you take the next step and learn about technique and and what are different people doing and what are the top people doing you know and and but i think at the end of the day it's easy to go you you can go one of two ways from there you can kind of spiral down this um this abyss of a thousand different things to focus on and never really find your focus you can you know launch 20 different technology development programs to try to optimize you know clothing weight or windage or whatever (laughs) um or you can go down this rabbit hole of really diving into okay what are three or four factors that really matter so there was this awesome thing that Giles Scott said on this interview with Shirley Robertson where he says you know basically when COVID hit they had an extra year to focus on how to get him to the next level in the fin and at the end of the day what they went back to was focusing on the things that they knew would make you faster Um, you know, not going down any rabbit holes to try to figure out like what might make us faster or what sorts of things could we focus on that, that might change the game. You know, it was like, what things do we know contribute to boat speed and, and how do we then go and attack those things and, and really move the needle on those things. And, and, you know, I think that oftentimes, um, I mean, as much as maybe it's not obvious what those things are, it's where you've got to ask yourself the question, you know, where do people agree and where do people disagree? Because when people disagree on things, when you've got two, it's crazy to me. Sailing is this crazy thing where nobody knows the answers, right? Nobody knows like, this is the thing that you should be doing. Um, and there's some people who know what the important things to focus on are. And I think you've got to copy that. But, but, but I mean, the 470 is an example that I love because the 470s, those guys just go in circles, changing their gear. <laughs> and every year they change the sails, they change the rigs, they change the centerboards. And because they change the rig, they have to change the sails. Because they change the sails, they have to change the centerboard. Because they change the centerboard, they're going to redesign the hull. And, you know, you look at the 470 today and the 470 10 years ago, and, you know, they've probably been in circles a million times. And, and you know, are they getting faster? Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, a doubt the skill level is higher are the boats themselves higher or, or faster i mean a really interesting data point that i think is something that you can't can't help but 
point to is the fact that the men and the women in the 470 fleet sail with their spreaders at different lengths. And they say that there's two different optimal weights, right? The, the women aren't trying to get to men's weights and the men aren't trying to get to women's weights. And <laughs> I mean, so is one of those things better or worse? Or are they just different? And at the end of the day, it's really about, you know, figuring out what's actually important and, yeah. and spreader length, maybe, you know, this, this optimal weight thing that a lot of people think is what it's all about actually isn't the thing that um, is going to make or break your campaign at the end of the day. Right. If yeah. It other things. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's interesting when you talk about like that, that COVID year, we talked to uh, Anna and and Luke about like kind of their process a little bit. And it's kind of interesting because you think like an extra year is like so much time and you're like, oh, I'm going to get so much better in a year, but like to actually like move the needle at all in one year um, is pretty difficult. And even like looking at, at coaching college sailing, like, like that's kind of the similar, like youth sailing where you have a peak event every year. And like, when you have to restart with like new people every year, like a year it seems like a long time and then and then at the end you're you're barely improving so yeah and when especially, like the 470 fleet when you've been doing it for 15 years or something or like somebody's been doing it then how, how do you get better from there and i think one of the things we run into in the u.s oftentimes is an extra year is helpful if you follow this really linear progression of skill focus and development where you know you really exhaust the, the gains to be had in one topic before you move on to the next one and then you exhaust those ones before you move on to the next one but if you're always focusing on everything and and so often i mean one of the big kind of um, mental models that many of our athletes and coaches use and, and talk about here in the U.S. is this idea of you, you go to a regatta, you see what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are, and then you go back to your training environment and you practice those things that were your weaknesses. And then you go to the next regatta and you see if that's your weakness again. And then you go back to practice and you train on your weaknesses again, you know, and, and you just iterate that for four years. But I think that's pretty detrimental at the end of the day for two different reasons. I think that if you follow that belief system and that process of, of kind of training only the thing that you were weakest at at your last event, well, for one, what you were weakest at at that event or what had the biggest impact on your results is somewhat up to the conditions of that regatta to, you know, the competition at that regatta. It's a really small sample size. You're only out there on the race course for, you know, let's say max 18 races and 18 races is a lot, but if you get one condition all week long or, or, you know, you don't get to revisit conditions across the, the couple days of the event or something like that. Um, it's the sort of thing where you don't really get to, to see, did I get bad starts in this condition because I'm bad in that condition or did I get bad starts in this condition because we only did three starts in that condition. And, you know, on average, the best sailors in the fleet only get off the line of plan A one third of the time. And so this was just happened to be the one third of the time that I didn't get off the line. And then we might kind of be led to believe that we need to focus on this thing that, you know, was was indicated by a bit of a red herring by something that that wasn't actually truly an indicator of what we should be focusing on right now that's the first issue with this idea of thinking about things in in kind of a we're going to fix what's broken every after every regatta and the second thing is that it really leads to the idea of 
you know, your, your focus, you, you are just as likely to focus on any skill set at any point in the four year period as you are on any other skill set. So in year one, you're just as likely to focus on, you know, lured mark roundings or the escape from the starting line or, you know, whatever category you want to put these skills into as you would be to focus on that thing in year four. But to go back to your point about this COVID year, this bonus year, you know, that you got to train for, for Tokyo, um, there were only a certain number of things that you could practice during that year because you didn't have the fleet. You didn't have international competition. You didn't have regattas to go to, to practice, you know, the, the big picture race strategy. Um, you had to focus on things that you thought were going to make an impact in that year. And if that's boat handling, I mean, boat handling is a year one topic. If your boat handling isn't, isn't where it should be by the end of year one, you're really in a place where um, you are not really racing at the highest level. So you're not getting the lessons out of racing, maybe you should you're not in a place to be productive in boat speed practices because if if you're upside down half the time in 25 knots <laughs> you know your, your practice is going to be a lot shorter than if you're nailing the boat handling and you can actually go out and and focus on the boat speed um so i don't know you know i, I think that having this progression of skills over the course of the four years is a really really important idea and as it as it relates to covid um, you're limited, you were limited in the things that you could actually focus on in that year. And you really had to ask the question, what can we move the needle on and what's going to make a difference at the end of the day? And, you know, I think if you got the answer to that question, right. Um, then you stood to, to improve a lot more than, than, uh, than others. And, and, you know, I think that, when you see some of the standout performances at the Olympics, um, I think a lot of those people in kind of their post-Olympic interviews and, and post-Olympic debriefs have chalked it up to, hey, we, you know, whether by chance or by, you know, thinking about it and, and getting it right, we did things in the last year that were really productive and, and really did move the needle for us. And, and I think it's a really interesting, you know, it's a, hopefully something that that the people who have kind of experienced it and who lived through it will carry forwards into their future campaigns and and into their future sailing because i think i think it is a hopefully an experience that nobody will have again <laughs> but hopefully also something that will really um you know allow people to think about things in in those ways that will allow their training to be really productive in the future yeah interesting to think like if if COVID happened like how how different the results of the Olympics would have been like who who used that year to uh to yeah. succeed but anyhow let's um move on to kite foil league for for a second um <laughs> so you kind of thought of this idea like springtime or early this year um and then put the three events on and kind of what what did you kind of what was your conclusion coming out of the three events, the California Triple Crown, and then and kind of where are we where are you moving forward from from there? Yeah, interesting question. I think you know, I guess to start when when we sat down and started talking about this in the beginning, I I certainly wouldn't say that I had an idea. You know, I I would say that we sat down and and started talking about you know what what do the kiters need what would change the game and and what would kind of create this sense of community that is something that i think is a, a really critical part of um of competitive fleets and and of you know the the development of these olympic fleets in the u.s and and it sort of evolved from there and and so you know, I think the whole thing has been kind of this exercise in learning and, and understanding what went well and what 
could be improved and what did people value and and what you know what's going to get people out there and get them invested in this thing long long term and we've had a lot of takeaways you know obviously we learned a ton about running the races we learned a ton about the race management side of things and and i think that went really well that was something that we started off and and kind of when we first started talking about the thing you know the idea was worst case scenario I throw marks in the water and blow whistles every day. And, and this could just be, you know, practice racing around hippity hops, uh, right. with a whistle. And, and it kind of turned into this thing that was supported by, um, by a lot of people who really turned it into more professional, um, you know, tetrahedrons and, and amazing mark set, um horns and and things like that and and i think that it ended up being a strength where we thought in the beginning that that would be kind of the afterthought um i think that coming away from it you know one of the things that we talked about a lot in the beginning was that we wanted to create all this content and we figured that as far as from from my standpoint as far as my coaching when I wanted to figure out how you coach more effectively in the kites and how you kind of come away from a day with the footage and the content that you need to sit down and debrief and I think that having you guys out there on the water with the drones with the cameras on land like at the end of the day that that produced the content and the um the resources really that we need as a fleet to sit down and and really get something out of those debriefs at the end of the day you know i think that that the debriefs can be so much more valuable with that content but with that said i think so much energy went into producing the events <laughs> that <laughs> i think we got to the end of most of them and we're like, okay, let's take a deep breath and, and like get ready for the next one, right? Right. And we didn't really have the chance to sit down and debrief. We didn't really have the chance to actually utilize that content and you know the drone video, um, the technique video, in the ways that that are really uh, productive. And so you know, I think the hope moving forwards here is to take a step back, at least for me. To those things that initially drove my interest in running the events and, and getting that network of people together to try to create that content and to try to create those debrief experiences, those coaching experiences, and figure out how we actually sit down in a classroom and utilize the resources that you know were produced at those first three events. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, like the. Uh... I think that that sailing is definitely changing like so much right now. And I think like coaching goes along with that, obviously. And I think when you look at the kind of the future of racing, like that was kind of what we were talking about. Like, how can we make audiences more interested? How can we make like viewership um, more like understandable? And then like even just, yeah, like the the coaching, the, the technology, the degrees, like all that stuff's changing. And I think that if uh, if someone can can figure it out <laughs> quickly, then um, it could be a could be a huge advantage for racing you know we were even just talking to Yago last week about like is there a future in free sailing like not even uh, competing like where is uh where is sailing gonna go in the future so interesting yeah you know <laughs> I mean I feel like there's there's definitely I mean it's about creating creating an ecosystem and to date I think that you know in my opinion, one of the things that a lot of the successful Olympic programs that have created these big, successful, generational Olympic systems have done well is that they have kind of understood how to create an ecosystem within the constraints of their countries and of their um, demographics and of their 
you know, the, the people who are already doing it and are already interested. And when I look at what that looks like here in the US, um, the kites are so such a key part of that, I think, because it's it's more accessible. It's something that doesn't require access to water in the same way that sailing does. I think that, you know, when you think about sailing and when I go to try to run a clinic for sailing, I have to go around and find a yacht club who, you know, is willing to support that, who's willing to let us launch out of their facility. If they're going to charge a fee, then that fee has to be built into the fee that, you know, the sailors pay to go and do that thing. Whereas with kiting, you can just show up on the beach <laughs> and launch kites and go racing. And it, it requires so much less infrastructure. It's so much less, um, you know, regulated in a way, I guess. And, mm -hmm. and so much more accessible in that way. And I think that's really unique. And I think that it kind of lends itself to, when you think about the ecosystem that has to exist, I really believe that here in the United States, you know, we're not gonna ever have the lottery funded program that gets money from the government or something like that. And, and so we need to be asking the question, how, do we work within this more capitalistic model of, you know, trying to create value for sponsors? It can't just be hypothetical value. It has to be real value. How can we create, whether it's viewership or a brand association or something that's actually going to drive value for sponsors? And I think that, you know, the sweet spot is more a model of surfing or or rock climbing or you know some of these sports that have evolved in this new social media environment um media driven you know more grassroots based environment than than sports of the past that you know maybe evolved on major major networks or or something like that um, and if you can create the ecosystem that can support that, if you can create the ecosystem where an audience can engage with, with the athletes on a more personal level, if you can create the ecosystem where, you know, brands can support those athletes and, and kind of have, there's a value for them to support those athletes. Um, they're receiving kind of this branding and this association with, with a brand that, that drives sales and drives um, value for them, then I think it really, you know, creates something more sustainable. And obviously that's a, a lofty goal and it's a, a um, reality that might be a long ways off. But I think that you know, step one was kind of creating this little thing that is nimble and is able to, to pivot quickly and respond to feedback and experiment with different ideas and experiment with how do you actually um, create that ecosystem and how do you create something that adds value for the athletes? How do you create something that adds value for the audience? How do you create something that adds value um, for the sponsors and, and the brands associated with it. Um, and, and so that's kind of what we've been trying to play with and experiment with, and, and we'll see where it goes. You know, I think that from here, we've created a ton of content that has been underutilized so far. And, and so figuring out how to dig back into those archives and, and really, um, get the most out of the content that we've already created. And again, use that to create value for the athletes and create value for the sponsors who helped support this first season um, will, will be a huge component of that. Um, and then we'll see where we go from there. You know, I think that, that there's, we're still on the very tip of the learning curve, the very steep part where, you know, <laughs> our conversations, our ideas um, change every day.
and and we have to be lean we have to be nimble we have to be willing to change and and that ultimately is going to be the thing that allows us to kind of develop this thing that um that is what people are looking for and, and that can thrive in the ecosystem that um you know that we're working in yeah that, i mean that's a <laughs> a very interesting take on like the i think coaching to like sponsorship uh idea you know because you're using the kite foil league as kind of all of that which i think is, is super cool and definitely excited to see kind of how that blossoms into something else where i think the the sponsorship side of sailing is very like i think clgp is trying to do it yeah. um and u.s sailing is becoming a little better but still like i don't know it's very interesting when you look at like rock climbing where there's a huge appeal to rock climbing but like I could argue that there's a lot cooler footage of sailing, <laughs> you know? Oh, oh, um, I mean, the Olympic coverage of the sailing, the footage was incredible. It was, it was unbelievable. Like it was, it was really visually appealing. I think um, they did a good job of the graphics and kind of explaining what was happening on the race course in such a way that you could understand um, with the, with the overlays on the race course and stuff like that, you know, the, the technology to tell the stories is there at this point, it, it might not have been 10 years ago, but it is now. And now it's a question of what do you do with that? And, and I think that, you know, one other little example of, of why I really believe in this idea is you go to a regatta right now and you see, pretty much just as many coach boats in the water in a marina in Poland, you know, as you see sailboats in the boat park. Um, and for there to be that much um, logistical infrastructure required for there to be that many gas burning, <laughs> you know, motorboats on the water chasing these sailboats around every single day, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, it just, it, it's not what sailing's about. Um, and it's not, it, it, I don't know, it, it makes the expenses of it crazy. And I think that if you can kind of come back to developing a model where that's more like surfing, where the coaches, you know, they're not in the water whispering in their athlete's ear or whatever, <laughs> you know, they're, they're watching the footage and, and they're using these tools that are actually better tools than seeing things with their own eyes. You know, they're watching the perspective from their athlete's point of view, or they're watching from the overhead drone shot. Um, and, and same with, you know, same with even traditional sports like football, you know, those guys are doing a tremendous amount of video review that come from cameras and sensors that are all over their arenas, right? And whether it's basketball or football um, or baseball or you know any any other modern sport, is reducing the reliance on seeing things happen in the moment and moving towards a model of we can go back and we can review these things. And I think the challenge that sailing faces is that, that it requires several pieces to come together all at once in order to have that be able to happen. You know, we, it's not good enough to have a coach who can talk about those things. You have to have a coach, you have to have um, a, a film crew, essentially, especially for the kites, since they're going so fast, you need uh, a film crew who has access to the drones, who has access to the point of view cameras, who has access to, you know, the on, on land shots. Um, you need a team to cover these things. You then need somebody, you know, maybe the coach is going to do this processing, but you need somebody to sit down and actually put things together in such a way that there's a logical progression and that we're not just you know, shooting in the dark at, at a video that we're sitting down and watching for the first time. Um, and, and so it does take a lot of work. It takes a lot of manpower. 
Um, and, and it takes a lot of pieces of the puzzle to come together all at once. But ultimately, you know, if we can create the systems that, that create those things that support each other, um, it, it really allows for a, a more streamlined, more impactful um, coaching environment. And, and ultimately, you know, it's not about the coaching environment, it's about the athlete learning. And, and I think that that's really what we're, what we're trying to create, trying to develop. Yeah, no, that's a brilliantly little sum up there. So I think um, <laughs> we could talk about this probably all day about yeah, coaching and sure. media and yeah. stuff like that. But um, I think it's time to wrap it up. And cool. um, any other questions, Quinn? Or No, all good. Thanks, Willie. Yeah. That was very in-depth. I'm, yeah, I'm sure, we could, <laughs> sure you could go all year talking about <laughs> this stuff. I, I plan to. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. win our longest podcast so far. So. <laughs> I, I was thinking. No, uh, <laughs> I was thinking. I was like, uh, Willie's probably the the. Uh, if I if I could see one like sailing coach come on like Shark Tank with like some some like weird <laughs> idea about coaching, <laughs> it'd probably be probably be you. <laughs> Which I don't is know if uh, cool. A good thing or a bad thing, but <laughs> no, I mean, it's uh, always thinking outside the box. Nothing will change. And new things. So, no, good yeah. to good to be around. Cool. Awesome well, guys. Thanks, Willie. See you, Willie. See you guys. See ya. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.